So we're back for a special episode of Freewheeling. Not really special, but a second episode uh, on Monday. We don't usually do this Monday. This Monday is reserved for Nerd Alert. However, we didn't get to answer everyone's questions last week, so we decided to have another, hopefully like a little bit shorter. We'll see how how on a roll Lauren and I get, but... I'm happy, Mickey. (laughs) We're already off to a tangent start. Um, I'm here with my favorite co-host, Lauren Rowney. Hi, Lauren. Hey, how are you doing, Abby? Good. So we, when we decided to do a second episode, um, and it's kind of a special episode because we didn't want to do basically we didn't want to do two Q and A episodes in a row on the normal freewheeling Monday. So this is coming out on the Monday in between the two freewheeling episodes, and that's why it's a special episode. However, the original plan was to just answer the rest of the questions you guys gave us, but on last week's Tuesday or Wednesday, the new Women's World Tour calendar came out, and we must discuss this. It's We have we have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. That's, it's our job. <laughs> <laughs> that's what? Um, yes. So... The calendar starts with Strata on August 1st and then kind of works through the usual races that happen in August. There's Vegarda, um, Tour of Norway, Plue, and then kind of goes into um, La Course, which overlaps, obviously, the men's Tour de France on the 29th of August. And then going into September, we have the usual Bowles Ladies Tour, and then the Giro is thrown into September. Flesh Willow, Liege, Bastogne, Liege, Amstel Gold, Gant Wevelgum, and Flanders are uh, September 30th through October 18th. So we get all the Ardennes and stuff. And then we also have, I can't pronounce this Chinese race. Can you pronounce it? Gangji. Gangji. Yep. I don't know. Yep. Um, which overlaps with Japan. Depana. Um, and then in also in October, on the 20th of October. And then we've got uh, October 23rd to the 25th, Chongming Island, which overlaps with Periru Bay, which is the 25th of October, and we will get to that. And wrapped up with the Madrid Challenge, November 6th to 8th. And the Worlds is stayed the same. Nationals, they've rescheduled for August 20th to the 23rd, which we can get to that. Uh, Europeans, August 24th to 28th, very soon after national. So I f- feel like people are going to have to pick which one they want to go to. But that's a rough, a very rough outline of the calendar, which we've, there's been articles about it already on cyclingtips.com. So you can check out cyclingtips.com to see what Dane Cash had to say about it. But we wanted to react to it because we have opinions. Lauren. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, based on the response from the riders, I can understand everyone's just excited to have a date. Um, So you can start working towards something with the Olympic athletes, uh, for example, sports like rowing. You know, they've known for over a month and a half now that there is a new date to work towards. But with cycling, it's been up in the air. So it's been like this sort of state of limbo. So I can imagine that everyone's really excited. I'm sure Tom's is really pumped about the jam-packed uh, schedule for the men, which I'm just looking at it now is is crazy, actually. Um, for the women, yeah, we have a bunch of races. They're trying to squeeze in as many as possible. Um, I think one thing we did talk about, or at least I mentioned, was I wondered how it would impact on next year having so many races at the end of the season. But I suppose because no one's really racing now, it's like, they've had to kind of just go back to basics and then build up again as if it was just another long off season. Um, So I'm really excited about it. Obviously the announcement of Paris-Roubaix has gotten me the most excited. And I imagine that a lot of people will probably end their season around October 25th, finishing with that. And that would be a really iconic race to sort of top of the year. But um, I felt, thought that was quite interesting for the ASO to step up and do that considering past history where I feel like we could have a whole episode on uh, our thoughts around ASO. Yeah, the obviously the best, the biggest news for the new calendar is a women's Perry roubaix which my immediate 
reaction to that was, oh, well, Ellen Van Dyke's going to wear that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That has got her name written all over it. That would be epic. Yeah. I mean, as far as the calendar goes and the way that the calendar goes, I think there's not a ton of overlap for the women. And, of course, the two overlapping races are in Belgium and France and China. Which, so that's kind of... Yeah, of mm. course. It's like... So if you look at it, they've basically put the spring classics, um, all those Belgium-type races... In that, the Ardennes and everything. Exactly, in the October month. So I feel that all the big teams are going to be targeting those races and then um, those tours in China are a really great opportunity for if you have a big team to, sec- to send sort of like a second string team to give younger riders an opportunity or for some of maybe those American teams or Australian teams to go over and have a go. So basically anyone who doesn't get a start in like Flanders or Roubaix, Ghent, Wilbraham, they'll probably head to China. So it's not going to cause much conflict in my in my opinion. Yeah, I don't think so either. I mean, yes, women's teams are smaller. Having a split squad like that is a little bit tough, but they have the means to do it. So it's not a big deal. And it would have been a problem if there was like three races going on at the same time. But I think that this calendar, they've done a really good job of taking the races that we really want to see, which are the one day races and the Giro, which hopefully we'll be able to see it live with our eyes and making it so they're all together. They're all packed together. They're, we end in, for most people, I think they'll want to end at Paris-Roubaix. So October, late October, which is later than usual, but not that much later than usual. And and I'm with with you, like, there's, there's dates written down. That means that the races have enough time to try to organize. And I just want there to be racing this year. I miss bike racing so much. So... This glimmer of hope. This glimmer of hope is fantastic. And being someone who lives in Belgium, it's like, all right, so my October is booked now. I know what I can do (laughs) every weekend. Yeah. And like, I'm going to make the effort to make the trip to these races, whether that be with my bike or car, probably bike. But um, no, it's really exciting. And I know your enthusiasm for Zwift racing, but I have to admit, it's just for me, it's, it's not the same. Um, no, all. it's not the same. I'm I'm just trying to get excited about really anything at this point, but it's not the same. <laughs> I've been enjoying um, anyone who's Belgian that listens to the show. We have this really great TV show at the moment called The Container Cup, and they've set up a, a shipping container with, like, various um, different ex- exercise apparatuses. Like, um, they've got the rowing erg, treadmill, bench press, shooting, golfing, all these like different things. And they've just selected a bunch of athletes from all different sports to compete. Um, And it's been very interesting. And actually for the longest time, it was going to be a rower that was going to be like at the top of the leaderboard, but he's, his shooting skills, unfortunately let him down, but I'd like to see more of those things. Athletes versus This sounds amazing. Oh, it's so great. And then now they've got the celebrities on and it's quite funny to watch the celebrities, but, um, yeah, (laughs) the like pitting different types of athletes against one another. It's been, yeah, very entertaining. I mean, a cool thing about the calendar also is the Ardennes happen before Flanders, which is a little bit interesting that we're going to be able to see, um, the Ardennes usually happen last on the classics calendar. And now the last race is Perry Roubaix, which I think is an awesome wrap up. To oh, the end it's going to be racing. amazing. Um, the only race that I really am missing is Binda, which is one of the smaller world tour races, but is my, one of my personal favorites, but uh, Hey, any racing, any racing is good. F- all fingers crossed fingers, toes, everything's crossed. I just really want there to be racing. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a big question mark here in Belgium. There's a, like a kind of a divide between people who think that, um, we're in the process of, um, our exit plan essentially. So, you know, there's been a bunch of restrictions lifted and, uh, shops open on Monday. So tomorrow things will be opening again, but, 
um, taking social distancing into account. But there's this fear that the numbers are going to rise again and then the country will shut down again. So I'm just hoping that we get through the summer and um, by October, which is very much a month like April in Belgium, we'll have Mm – the classics in the Ardennes. So it will be kind of like it is April, except six months later. (laughs) It's going to feel really, really weird watching like Strata in August. Yeah. And I feel like the temperature is actually going to play a big part in the race. Yeah. August in Italy is freaking hot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that and the Giro too. I mean, the Giro might be a little cooler. We're into September by then, but man, I have no problems with the calendar at all. Give us the racing. And the and the fact that they've given a calendar means the races can plan. I know I just said this, but the races can plan, which means there it's more likely that it's going to happen if coronavirus allows it. So I'm all for it. Get excited. No issues. Yeah. And get your butt <laughs> over to Europe. Excited. I know I need to get over there. It's it is there are many many issues trying to get over there. <laughs> August 1 is your uh, deadline, Abby. You need to be here. No, my deadline is I would really like to be there by Tom's and I's anniversary, which is I got like 2 weeks. I think it's May. Tom's knows and he's going to listen to this and be like, "You can't remember our anniversary, but I think it's May 24th." We have a discussion, like a debate between Hannes and I. I think it's June 22 and he thinks it's August. <laughs> so in, in my mind, we got together before he went to the Olympics. Mm. Yes, but we all know what happens at the Olympics, don't we? Yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, a, that's a whole different, yeah. Yeah, well, that's a whole other podcast. Yes, it is. I, Tom's and I have the added benefit of like, he specifically asked me to be his girlfriend on a day. So So we've got some more questions. I think since we were just talking about the calendar, we can start with this slightly impossible question about if we could structure the calendar, the women's world tour calendar, what races would we add and what races would we take away? Lauren, do you want to try it first? You you take the lead on this one, Abby. I'm staring okay. at the question and pondering it. All right. So for starters, I would add Santos to her down under. Agreed. Um, if, there's, if there was a race in New Zealand, that'd be awesome. So like everyone kind of breaking it into parts of the world, right? You start out the calendar in Australia because it's summer down there. You do Santos, Cadell's. Um, the the next race that I can't remember the name of, what's the next race that's right after Cadell's that most Herald people leave Sun for? But, yeah, so you have Harold Sun Tour. So that kind of breaks it into a couple races. Not, I don't think Harold Sun Tour should be part of the world tour. You have to have you have to have other races that aren't so that the smaller teams can race against the world tour riders. But Mm -hmm. if you have like a big chunk of world tour racing down in Australia and I'm adding New Zealand because I would always, I would really love to go to New Zealand. Did you never do the, so there used to be this fantastic tour um, in February called the women's tour of New Zealand. And back in the day, like teams like high road would show up for it. So I did it the last year, I suppose it was on, um, but with a national team, we went across instead of specialized Lulu. But um, it was an amazing race. And then people would go on from there to Europe. Of course, I think once Tour Qatar sort of came on, then it was a bit of like conflict between the two. And then I think the race lost money and um, didn't become, it wasn't a UCI race anymore. But it was awesome. And I agree with you 100%. Let's bring back something in New Zealand. Yeah, throw it in, throw it into the calendar right after the Herald Sun Tour. And then people can, I mean, some teams can take that week off of the, where the Herald Sun Tour in is, but you can have Sant, Santos turn out under Cadell's and then go to New Zealand and then people can go back to Europe. So it makes this really, really good 
chunk of racing down in Australia and New Zealand where you're not having to travel around and stuff and people can just take one trip down there, one trip back. Um, and that'd be awesome. And then it would kind of spread out the racing a little bit more down, down under. Yeah, I agree. And it gives those riders, for example, down under who might not get a, a chance to go overseas to get seen. Um, it's great for the young riders to just sort of, Uh, get that opportunity particularly the national teams like New Zealand and Australia get to send a squad and it's their big shot to to race against the big girls essentially um yeah and I love it I love I love the tour down under I love the racing down under and I couldn't agree more tour down under was awesome I don't know why it's not world tour yet I know they're fighting for it and they have been for years and I have no doubt that they they will get the the world tour status so then moving into Europe I've got Strada, Drenta, Binda, Ghent, Wevelgem, Flanders, Amstel, Gold, uh, Flesh Wallone and Liege, Bastogne, and Liege and I have left off of it <laughs> so I included basically all the races we have so far except Depana, Flesh Wallone, and Amps and Liege Bass on Liege. And that is my my own issues with the ASO. Yeah. Um, that I've chosen to leave some of the ASO races off of the calendar. Now, the reason that I've done that is because we want races that have live coverage, that want to be seen, that wanna put in the effort for the women to, you know, show the best that they've got. And and those races in the past have not done so Uh so i don't believe they have earned world tour status in my heart if that makes sense Mm -hmm. no i agree with you there you've taken the words out of my mouth that was the the races that i was gonna comment on and i think we've said it before and um i think dane did a really nice piece on flesh alone obviously it's a bit of a different race for the women but um it isn't the most exciting race um, it's a very unique rider that seems to win it. It seems to be the same sort of rider that wins it every every year. Um, mm-hmm. and I mean, again, it's the same with the men. Like, yeah, exactly. The same two riders win it every yeah. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. So I agree with that. I'm not sure if the race in China is World Tour. Chongming, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I do believe there should be racing in Asia. And agreed, but I like to to see um, the race itself. The Chongming Island race is not so nice. I've heard that. Yeah, I think the one that actually used to come later in the year was was nicer than the one in May, which was Chongming. It's not the most interesting race. It's like big highway race cycling, in my opinion. But I agree, there needs to be more racing in Asia. It's all just sprinting. Every day is a sprint, is a sprint. And it seems chaotic from Yeah, there's always crazy crashes. Yeah, exactly. And um, there's a lot of potential investors from these these Asian countries. Like, they love cycling over there, particularly Japan. So I would honestly like to see more racing in Japan, perhaps Taiwan. Oh, agreed. Agreed Mm -hmm. 100%. So let's say after Amstel... We throw in a chunk of racing in Japan and Taiwan would be sweet. Um, and we don't know any names off the top of our head, but if we could have like a Japan Cup for women that happens right after Amstel, maybe mm. a week after Amstel or such, like those are perfect races for kind of the B team to go over and do or the domestiques that need a chance to win. Exactly. Which I, I personally would watch a race of all domestiques every day because they don't really get a chance that often and it makes the racing really exciting. Um, Then I've got a chunk of racing in the United States. So Tour California, bring it back, but give it seven days and make it worth it. Um, Which, yes, owned by the ASO. However, before it was owned by the ASO, it was still one of the biggest races in the U.S. for women. Or I guess maybe they bought it the year that it became... But anyway, I love that race. It's It just says, I have opinions about it being purchased by the ASO, what that, and made World Tour, made World Tour being the big thing and what that did to racing in the US. It pretty much killed racing in the US. But I 
before before it was world tour it was still a huge race and that was the race it's a special place in my heart because it was the race where tom's was really discovered and i just and i think not just for that's a perfect example someone like tom's who was discovered there but i feel that for some young American um, female riders, not even just young ones. Katie Hall. Exactly. Katie Hall. That's where Katie Hall like made her mark on the sport. Really? That was 2017 when she was going head-to-head with uh, Anna Vanderbregen was so exciting. Um, yeah. And again, it's like when the Tour de Katie was in the leader's jersey and then Anna took it back in the sprints on the last day. It was crazy. I was reporting for yeah. Vox Women. It was so much fun. Um and I agree with you, that was that was really great. And back when I was racing, there was a really fun block around that May-June period that um, our team used to send us to because uh, our sponsors were American. So it made sense, particularly with Specialized. But, um, you know, I, I thought Philly was a lot of fun, even though it was in the streets of Philadelphia. But still, I got a kick out of that race, even though I'm not really good at going up walls. Um, and then Winston-Salem, I thought was a really fun race. Um, Gatineau, things like that. That road race was quite boring. But again, it was just nice to have racing over that side of the world. And again, it was an opportunity for for the domestiques to just kind of have a go, all the younger riders on the team. Um, it just was felt more spread out in a sense. Yeah, so you kind of read my mind. I threw in, I've got Tour California, Philly, Winston-Salem, and Gatineau as like three one-day world tour races in the U.S. Because, yes, it's adding a bunch more races to the calendar, but it would just elevate the racing in the U.S. for the women. It would be, it'd be amazing to have those races be world tour. I mean, you also have, you know, the crit, at Winston-Salem obviously wouldn't be world tour, but if you could also like throw in a crit at Philly, that's not world tour and have a couple, you know, fun races that the world tour riders can jump into. And then all the crit riders and the younger riders who race the crit series in the U S would, their minds would be blown. And I think um, that style of racing, like the circuit racing, Philly draw used to draw out thousands of crowds. It was crazy. And that's exactly what, our sport needs right we want people to come and line the streets and get into it and learn about cycling and then see what these athletes are doing out there and America I've always felt did such a great job at putting on a show um I loved going to racing and I always used to get so pumped up um the American block was a really nice break in the year because as you know if you're coming from yeah down under or the U.S. spending a whole season in Europe particularly when you're starting out, uh, it's pretty challenging. But I always found that when I went to America, it was like a break in the season. And then I go back to Europe and you would get like stuck into it again with Women's Tour of Britain. And then before you knew it, it was the Giro. And after the Giro, it's like downhill from there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's a different style of racing in the US. Mm-hmm. So you're able to kind of turn your brain off a little bit. Your legs are still working. It's still hard for your body. But mentally it's not as hard and so it's a really really nice break after all of the one day races in Europe it's kind of going from like racing down in Australia and New Zealand would kind of turn you on turn turn the body and the mind on to racing Mm -hmm. and then all the one days in Europe are really hard and then you get to kind of take a little bit of a reprieve from the really really hard racing and still be racing at Chongming and this isn't taking anything away from the people who win these races because it's still a world tour race right like they've earned that title for a reason and then I have you coming back you specifically Lauren racing (laughs) (laughs) I have you I have the calendar the calendar coming back to kind of what the men do a little bit where they go from one days into tours i've thrown in the giro before tour of britain or maybe at the same time like overlapping the men do it the women should be able to overlap too i think yeah we have there the teams are getting bigger there are more directors added to the teams every year there's more resources especially with we're assuming you know building a world tour calendar like this that the world tour teams are getting 
paid a reasonable amount, a livable salary, and have the resources to be able to race all over the world. So I have the tour, the Ovo Energy Tour and the Giro overlapping, and I would make the Ovo Energy Tour seven days with a break. The So I would start it with Yorkshire mm-hmm. and then have two days off and then race Ovo Energy Tour. I would almost look so at it a- as like the Giro is the Giro. So the men have three grand tours, the Giro, the Tour de France, and the Vuelta. And for me, the three biggest tours in my mind were always, just because I love them, was the Giro, <laughs> the Women's Tour of Britain, and Turrigan. Yeah, agreed. So it would be, yeah, I like your thought process. I would still space them apart because I feel like if we did have three grand tours, then people like Annemiek van Vluten would really want to turn up for all of them. And Turrigan should be a world tour race. Yeah. Um, is it now or not? It's not. Yeah. So what if we did What if we did um, a block that's Yorkshire and then the Ovo Energy Tour, and that's a block. And then after that, we had the Battle of the North. Yep. So that's the new race that's going to happen in 2021, hopefully, which is combining Vagarda and Tour of Norway and then also throwing in some racing in Denmark. Yeah. So that's a, that's going to be a 10-day race. We're not making this up. That's going to be a 10-day race in 2021, hopefully. Um, the only other 10-day race for the women on the calendar. So we can throw in the Battle of the North right after Ovo Energy Tour. And then have a little bit of a break and then the Giro. So that's basically two, that's like basically three 10 day races back to back kind of, but with breaks in between. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the breaks in between should be where the men's big races are. So like the break in between the Ovo Energy Tour or the break in between the Battle of the North and the Giro is like the first week of the Tour de France or the first two weeks of the Tour de France. Yeah. Because... I do think that there can be some overlap of the Giro and the Tour. I hate it, but it means that there's so much coverage going on of the Tour that, say, for the Cycling Tips podcast, we have the daily podcast of the Tour de France, and we also throw in the Giro stuff in there. So if people are wanting to hear about the Tour de France, they have to also listen to the Giro stuff because it's all in the same podcast. Okay, I like that because... I was just going to comment and say I kind of always disliked the fact that the Tour de France and Giro clashed because I always felt that the women didn't get the media coverage or attention they deserved. But that being said, hopefully other media outlets will do the same thing. I'm just assuming that other media outlets are as good as us. Not not the case, but... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I can I've that um, one right now and I can say no. <laughs> <laughs> um and I was gonna so I am completely removing the idea of a women's tour de France from the calendar mm-hmm. and making our Desh world tour. And our Desh would kind of not wrap up the season. So I've got we've kind of mixed it all around right now, but Ovo Energy Tour as a as a 10 day in quotes, which starts with Yorkshire, that's one day and then two days off and then over energy tour. So you'd assume that people would send the same teams to that. And then battle of the North Giro. So those are three quotation, 10 days. And then I've got Plue. Right. And then a Macmean, bringing back a Macmean Bira, uh-huh. which I would say like a five day, which is another great race. And then San Sebastian Lombardia. Ooh, Yeah. So maybe we'd have... So this like would be Mac- after the World Championships? So I would say a Macnamine Bira, Plue, a Macnamine Bira, and then the 10-day of Ardesh, World Championships, San Sebastian, Lombardia. I think it'd be great if the women did continue racing a bit longer. I mean, the men do do it, and they seem to do just fine. Um, yeah, exactly. So throwing in a few more iconic races, actually... A few years back, because the champ, the world champs were in the middle of October, we had to go and do – there's a few Italian races in October for the women. So we actually had to mm-hmm. go do them. Um, and that was quite a different mindset because normally for the women, we're used to just sort of switching off in September. So that being said, with this calendar this year, even though riders haven't raced barely, 
Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting when they hit like end of September and usually you're starting to wind down and then actually they're just gearing up. So I'm excited about that. But uh, I'm actually kind of, what if we like, this is, I do not envy the people who have to build a calendar. Oh my gosh. I was tempted to skip this question because I was like, this question could take an hour. What if we take all of the Asian races that we said after Amstel before TOC, we take all the Asian races and put them after the world championships, after Lombardia and San Sebastian? That's a great idea because, again, I think if you've had like a bad season, you've crashed out or something, um, you're looking to just get points before the next season, you want to send some young riders, it's a great opportunity. Plus, we still get that chunk of Asian racing. So that's brilliant. All oh, right. Done. I think Answer. we've discussed it enough, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> All right. Um, this question is from the boss, Wade Wallace. Tell me about your first bike race. Uh, my first bike race was a E-grade men's race because uh, I come from the Gold Coast, Australia. And I started racing in 2002 as a 13-year-old. My brother was racing um, the local crit on a Saturday morning. It was just like a club sort of thing. And um, I was a runner and I just finished like doing a bit of a running session and I decided to go watch him because he'd been talking about the cycling stuff. And I thought, all right, I'll go check it out. And then um, I saw this girl from my neighborhood. Um, She was there and I didn't realize she was sporty. She like, she rode horses, but I didn't think of her as like the sporty, sporty type. And then I said to my dad, oh, this Louise girl is riding. I want to start riding. So... The next week, they borrowed me um, a bike from the club, and they just sort of put me on it. I had not the clip-in shoes yet or anything, and, yeah, I raced the E-grade men, and I thought it was like a running race where with – I mean, it was a lot further, but usually I used to kick with 150 to go in the 800. Um, So I thought when I took the lead at the end in this E-grade men's race, like I basically had it won – um, but at about 152 go, everyone just went past me, including <laughs> including this girl who was just sitting in the wheels and then I was like just out the back and I was like in tears afterwards because I was super competitive and um, I always wanted to win and my dad was like, yeah, Lauren, it's, it's different tactics. You're going to have to learn these things and then from that moment I was hooked because I was determined to beat this this girl and that was it. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> My my first ever bike race was a collegiate mountain bike race, and it was so much fun. It was amazing. I mean, I think there was only um, maybe four or five people in the race to begin with, and I think I got third or second. I don't remember, but it was um, in Colorado on the side of a mountain, and I was racing this really crappy bike that <laughs> my ex-boyfriend had like found in a junkyard and it was so much fun. And I was just immediately hooked immediately was like, this is the best thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> uh, I think yeah. Ali Stalker, she started out with mountain biking collegiate. It sounds like a yeah, really fun did. scene. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was it, collegiate racing is amazing yeah that's one of my um you know sometimes you think about things you wish you'd done I wish I had gone to America and done collegiate sport just for a few years like my dream had always been to run track in the U.S. but then I discovered cycling so but that's not really the pathway is it when you're coming from down under I think it's kind of hard for collegiate riders to then go pro because the level of riding is not nearly as strong as it needs to be to prepare riders for mm. the the what they're jumping into. And you kind of can see it in a lot of the riders like that who start in collegiate and, and handling is the thing that they struggle with a lot. Yeah. Um, and they're starting obviously much later in their lives. Like Katie started in grad school. So that was, you know, well, she she started really competing when she was in grad school. So at a much later age. So you, it's a little bit of a, we have a handicap when it comes to racing in Europe. 
Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Anyway, one piece of advice for a neo pro. I think the biggest thing is to remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing and just to remember that you're doing it for yourself and there should be no other reason um, that you're pursuing this dream. It's In the end, it's all for you and when it's all done and dusted, if you can't look back and be proud of what you achieved, um, then it's all for nothing. My piece of advice would be to choose your village wisely Mm. and be very, very mindful of the advice that you listen to. Because my biggest issue in my career was I let I let people early on in my career guide me in a way that ended very, very badly. And if I had just been myself and kept being me throughout my whole career, I I think I would have lasted a lot longer and had a lot more quote unquote success, Um, which for me would have been racing in Europe. But I listened to people who had no idea who I was and what made me me. And I let them change me. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, I lost myself. And I also hated bikes. Mm-hmm. And I <laughs> still, think and still kind of do. The moral so, story there is be true to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Mm-hmm. That's a much better way to put it. Much more concise way to put it. No. That's All right. Good advice. <laughs> what is your thoughts on menstrual cups? Well, I'm do you actually, use them for long rides? <laughs> I'm actually using one right now. <laughs> Sorry, male listeners, but yes, I love a menstrual cup. And if you don't know what that is, please Google it. Um, For the women who don't use them, uh, there's a few reasons I do. One, environmentally friendly. Um, I'm really not a big fan of putting things like, yeah, tampons into our environments. They're not um, ecologically friendly. It's got me actually considering, um, I have considered, with with having a baby, I'm not pregnant right now, but um, in the future to do, um, yeah, nappies that you wash. So that's essentially what a menstrual cup is, is it's you reuse it. I always use them on long rides because as gross as it sounds, you can have it up there for quite a while. Um, mm. And your opinion, Abby, on this interesting question. <laughs> I've never, I've never used a menstrual cup, um, but my sister does and she loves it. So, and she goes on long runs with hers, which, um, which I think is even more important with all the the bouncing about. Yeah. So it's something that I will try in the future, but I, I am not, I am not knowledgeable in. So it's a good question because actually I've never, I've wondered about it, but I've never wanted to try it because um gross but yeah I mean I mean I am a female and I have had experience with menstruation yeah, well, for I mean, many years now well but the, the the thing is with these like um sorry again male listeners but if you do have a heavy flow um it's something really to consider because you can actually use it for a long period of time and it's not mm-hmm. It's not unsafe at all, whereas there is like a cautionary sticker on tampon boxes that after, I don't know, four or five hours, you have to actually remove it. I think it's eight hours that it's dangerous. Um, But I really, I would encourage people to use them. Uh, You'll save a lot of money um, as well. And it's just really good for the environment and good for your own um, health. Interesting. Okay. Good. Well, there you go. Um. Is it sometimes hard as a pro for your confidence to come back after a crash? My answer is yes, most definitely. I have struggled after crashing to come back, um, mostly with handling skills. I, I just would get nervous. There was this one particular time I remember crashing, um, at the USA pro cycling challenge in 2015. I took a really, really bad crash over a guardrail and um taylor wiles saw it she said it was one of the scariest things she's ever seen at the time um but afterwards i was slated to do another uh like kind of local race 
And I completely panicked and I, and I told my coach, nope, I'm done for the season because I was so scared of handling at that point. Um, so yeah, I've struggled with it. Yeah. I've struggled with it in the past for sure. I think it's, it's so, um, it's really dependent on the crash itself. So how it happened, um, because if someone takes you out, then you're going to be weary of other riders um, because it was totally out of your control. Uh, when I got pulled off my bike when a spectator hit my handlebars, like I knew that was something that doesn't happen often. Like it was a freak thing. So in my mind it was like, okay, don't sprint against the barriers again because one, you should just try not to. It's dangerous always along the barriers. And two, someone pulling on your handlebars probably isn't um, something that's going to happen often. But um, I remember that. I remember watching that. It was, yeah, it wasn't a nice crash to watch. Um, but yeah, I, for me, I don't know. It's interesting. Like I've never really had this fear of crashing. And after I've crashed, I guess that was the worst one for me. Um, I get back up pretty quickly. My only concern after breaking the collarbone, which I broke quite badly, was I just didn't want to break it again. Like Mm -hmm. I had a lot of metal in my shoulder and that was really the only fear. It wasn't the crashing itself, but, oh, if I just fall the wrong way and I break it again, then I'm really fucked. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's part of being a pro, right, is being able to get back up and, and, put it aside. And another question we have coming up is how to re-motivate after an unsuccessful weekend of racing, which is the same thing. That's kind of what makes a pro rather than someone who, who's not as a pro is a professional is able to just be like, all right, well that happened moving on. Mm -hmm. And that kind of what is what makes someone a good bike racer, Mm. I think. And that also comes down to your village too. Um, Correct. How you pick yourself up. Like I'm sure the great thing for you is you have a partner who's also a professional athlete. Even if he wasn't, say, a cyclist, you could talk to him. Um, I think all professional athletes should have a psychologist at some point or at least a mentor. I had a mentor in my last year of racing and that always helped because like for my last year, it didn't go as well as I'd liked. Um, I had some successes, but it was more challenges than anything. And um, yeah, I actually had a few crashes that year that um, Bill helped me get through. So yeah, I, I agree. I think every professional athlete or athlete who's aspiring to be professional or a young athlete should have a, a sports psych. Mm -hmm. It makes a huge difference. And it's, it's good for not only the moment of racing, but also the future of life. Yeah. That's, that what I, that's what I'd highlight is the most important thing is that transitional period. Um, and I'm sure any good psychologist now would be helping the athletes to start thinking about it at least, even if you're really young, like a young athlete and your career is just starting up. Um, it's something that you need to talk about and keep that discussion open constantly. Yes. Um, name one writer who will be a future star. Um, as long as she sticks with it, I think Sarah Gigante from Australia Um, can be at least an Australian future star. Uh, She's amazing. She's an incredible person. Um, She's really intelligent. So even if she doesn't continue on as a bike rider, she's going to be successful in whatever she does. I've heard really great things about this young rider. And, um, you know, she started off the season fantastically with that, the win. But um, she's definitely someone who's going to need a lot of guidance um, and a really great village around her. So my, my one writer who I think will be a future star is Megan Jastrab. She is the junior world champ. She won, um, amazingly. It was just a incredible race that she had last year in, in, um, Yorkshire, but she's got a really, really good head on her shoulders. She's just oh, a yeah. really well-rounded human. And I had the pleasure of being her teammate last year on rally. She didn't get to race with us a ton because she wasn't old enough. But having her at team camp and stuff and just getting to know her a little bit, I think that she is just 
amazing and she's so so strong but she's also got a really good personality and I think that that makes a big difference in the writer that that someone will become because talent is one thing but talent will only get you so far if you're not willing to put in the work and she is willing to put in the work and she does and it's really really incredible so that's my pick I could, yeah, I totally agree with that. I remember watching her. Biggest sacrifices that pros make. For you and I, it's, I think it's probably going to be the same thing, right? We, for a European who lives in Europe and most of the racing is in Europe, it's easy for them to go and see their families. But for us, if we wanted to race in Europe and, and when we did, you have to pick up and completely move to Europe and, and leave home. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, that was the, I suppose, at the start, the biggest sacrifice for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but like we've said before, Girona became my village and some of the best people I've ever met, I met through living in Girona. Um, so that definitely made it easier. Being away from your family is hard. Having a relationship with someone who still lives in another country is very difficult. I was lucky that I didn't really start a relationship till the end of my career and subsequently moved to the country where that person's from. But um, I think that's probably one of the biggest sacrifices. But also for me, I was always torn by the fact that there were other things that I felt that I wanted to do and I couldn't do them. So study was put on hold for a very long time. Um, because I was doing an environmental science degree and in my last semester I had to be present at university in the lab to do like my final few subjects and that just wasn't viable. Um, It didn't work out when I went back to Australia because then of course universities are on holiday over those summer months. So um, there's a lot of sacrifices, but I suppose the biggest thing is uplifting your whole life and moving across the world. Yeah. And um, all of the all of the mental pressure, I think, is not a sacrifice, but something that's really hard to deal with. Yeah. Whether you're putting it on yourself or, or I guess it kind of is a sacrifice because you, you sacrifice a little bit of your personality to be able to be good enough. I think you become more selfish and that was something I battled with. Um, Yeah. That that was something I never successfully did ever. It's why I'm no longer a professional cyclist. Well, my dad always said that was one of the reasons why he didn't think I could ever be as good as I wanted to be was I wasn't selfish enough. And I just, thought too much he I didn't have the mongrel in me (laughs) um how sketchy will the first races be with no group rides beforehand I mean I think (laughs) by the time I assume that by the time the racing starts the world will have to be in a place where you'll be able to go on group rides yeah, I agree so, with that. Um, that the races are going to be sketchy anyway because everyone's going to be – we've had, you know, as many months without any racing and people are going to be chomping at the bit. It's going to be bananas. It's going to be – so Strada Bianchi will be like the first spring classic of the year where every year it's the same thing. You get warned like this is the first really big race of the year racing at tour and under the numbers just aren't the same size. Um, so it will be sketchy, but it will just be like August one is kind of like March one. Yeah. Yeah. It'll, it's going to be, I mean, racing from the beginning is always sketchy, but like you said, at least if you start with the Australian races, the wide the roads are a little bit wider it's a little bit more laid back strata you know you're starting off with gravel roads so that'll be interesting but well we'll definitely thin it out that's yeah. what that sort of racing does which thin is good. the herd yes yeah <laughs> um if a large amount of the women's peloton isn't being paid a livable wage how do they make ends meet a few they ways start a podcast <laughs> yep one, that's how that's how Abby's making ends meet right now. Or like Abby's done, find a really good pro cyclist and make them your boyfriend. Yes, that's also the, I also did that. I tried that as well. 
Um, unfortunately, it backfired because uh, it turned out I loved him a lot more than bike racing, which is why <laughs> I don't bike race anymore, or one of the reasons. Um, but a lot of them have personal sponsors. Um, if yep. you're lucky, you get a personal sponsor. And then a lot of them have jobs on the side that are on your computer that you can kind of take wherever you go. That's kind of an ideal situation. If you've got someone on a smaller team, say like Lotto, um, who are perhaps earning nothing. Uh, a lot of those riders are actually from Belgium. So they'll live at home. It's quite common in Belgium to live at home until you're 28, till you're basically on your feet. Your parents won't kick you out. Um, that as well. So you have your family supporting you. I know some of the British riders come from wealthy backgrounds. Um, I was neither of those things. So I had to make things work for myself, like, and that was like Abby mentioned, I had private sponsors. I never earned a high salary. So it was always finding other ways. But if you're really determined to do something, um, like pursue a career as a professional cyclist, you'll make it work. I mean, whether that's sustainable, it certainly wasn't for me. But for the five years I was pro, um, yeah, I made it work. Um, I actually got told once by a director who was paying me 10, 10K a year, $10,000 a year um, that I had since I had the podcast on the side I was clearly not dedicated enough to cycling no. so that was that was fun <laughs> wow yeah I was like I I have to pay rent and feed myself not dedicated enough yeah it's like oh uh, yeah uh, yeah um what's a workout you used when a pro when you were pro to pick up your fitness prior to racing well um, this is kind of an interesting question because I think that it comes from your fitness for a race comes from months of preparation. So if you throw in, a like a sprint workout or something right before, if you don't have the, the months and months beforehand, it doesn't really mean anything, but some of my favorite pre-race workouts were 40 twenties. So mm-hmm. 10, 10 sets of 40 twenties up, a, up a climb. Um, that was my favorite or motor pacing because it basically simulates a race. You really have to work on your cadence and being able to keep up with the scooter over the little poppy climbs and stuff like that. So motor pacing and 40 twenties were my favorite workouts to do before a race. Uh, I agree with motor pacing, loved motor pacing. Um, hated 40 twenties. I still do 40 twenties just for fun. Oh my God, you're a sadistic person. Ugh. <laughs> no, what is it called? Masochist? When you yeah, like to inflict pain or something like that? Um, yeah, I sounds, hated it. Sounds about I right. I hated 4020s. When they were put on my schedule, it was like, <laughs> but. Um, I, went, I remember asking, my, I asked Ben to give me more 40, 4020s. Ugh. They really, though, they really do get you going. Um, they're great, uh, and I'm pretty sure everyone does 4020s. But I agree, 4020s and motor pacing would be the two biggest things. Biggest, this is one of my, I like this question a lot. Biggest rivalries in the pro women's peloton. Are we talking about teams or we're talking about riders, aren't we? We're talking about riders, I assume. And I kind of, the women's peloton doesn't have a ton of clear rivalries, so I made a list of all of the verses, blank versus blank, that I like to watch. Do you want me to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got Annemiek Van Vluten versus Anna Van der Bregen. That's a pretty oh. classic one. Yep, yep. Voss versus Dignan. Yes. Uh, Lorena yep. Wiebes versus Lucinda Brand. Uh-huh. Elisa Longo-Borghini versus Kashini Wadoma. Yeah. Or Cecilia Utrup Ludwig versus Kasia Niwadoma, Katie Hall versus Brody Chapman, and Amanda Spratt versus Ashley Mullen Passio. Oh, I like that. I would have almost pitted off Ashley versus Cecilia based on the fact they were on the same team at that point and mm-hmm. they were like rivals within the same team. Yeah, I um, agree with that. As bad as it is for for a team, it is interesting when there is rivalry within a team, and I have seen that. Oh yeah, yeah. that's a. Uh, I remember a classic one was 
Megan Garnier and um, Evie Stevens. Evie Stevens. Yeah. And they were like Americans and also teammates, but very similar riders. That was, yeah. All, that Giro, was like an entire year of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Epic. Yes. Um, but it does happen. There is a lot of rivalry within teams. I hate to say it, but particularly in the year of the Olympics, if you are on a team with a bunch of other Americans who could be potentially your rival for a spot, it gets very interesting um, mm-hmm. and it can affect the team, actually. Uh, I've seen it happen. Yeah, definitely. All right. Distances. The UCI seems to think that women can't slash don't want to race the same distance or vertical elevation as men. True or sexism? Hmm. I don't think that they do want to race the same distances. I would it hard pressed to find a woman who wants to race Milan San Remo or a 21 day stage race. I would love to race a 21 day stage race, but not the distances, the men's race. That's crazy. Um, but I think it's, Ooh, come from the UCI, maybe a little bit of sexism, <laughs> but I don't think that the women want to race those distances. The men race. I think that's the most important point. Like sometimes we like to, particularly on media, jump on the bandwagon that the UCI are this and they're that. And uh, yeah, it's more, it all comes down to actually what do the women want? And we've all spoken about it before. Like I find quite a lot of those really long stages in the men's grand tours extremely boring. And the men have admitted it themselves they wouldn't mind racing under 200 kilometers. And I think racing up to 150, 160 is more than enough to to have an exciting race. Like 160 sounds like a long race. Yeah, because it is. Because we're just, we're used to like the one, 110 to 130 races, but that's what the women, that's what makes the women's racing more interesting than the men's. Yeah, it's a different sport in that respect. It's like it's a little less, um, what's the word? Not planned, but I don't know, scripted. Predictable. Yeah, it's less scripted. It's less predictable. Um, I know there's a lot of races where it's just on from the gun, essentially, mm-hmm. um, which makes it extremely hard racing, but really good and fun to watch. And I think that's why women's cycling is actually gaining more fans because people are taking the time to watch it. Um, You just have to look at cyclocross, for example, in Belgium. People were watching the women's racing more than the men's. Yeah. Um, This kind of ties into one of the questions that I was going to skip because we were at an hour and I said we would keep this short, but um, was pertaining to the women being more more entertaining than the men in lockdown, which, uh, my response to that is the women are more entertaining all the time. Agreed. Yeah. Like all the time in racing, outside of racing on Twitter, on Instagram, in real life, the women are always more interesting. And I feel that, and again, this is just me, um, my opinion, but I know, um, Jose Bean, she just did a nice article about one of the women in the pro peloton. I think her name's Erica Magnaldi, about how she's a doctor and she started later and has had quite a lot of success. I think just in general, from my opinion, there are just a lot more interesting people within the women's peloton because a lot of women start later and actually – come from a completely different background where it's like a lot of these men in order to have the success that they have, they have to start very, very young and get into the system before they're like 20. It's very rare that you get someone in their twenties that gets picked up by a pro team. So they actually have to just focus everything into it. Whereas the women, um, I feel have more of an opportunity in a sense to come into it later and thus, we have some very interesting women, um, some great stories. Man, this is like a completely different conversation, but you think about how hard it is for, how hard it was for us to retire. What about like a dude who never went to college or or never really lived their life? They started going pro at like 
14 they started just racing bikes and not having any any life other than that and how hard it must be to have retired after that yeah and and actually as much as I'm, I'm not the biggest fan Rowan Dennis did say um some of the struggles he's had is the fact that his marriage isn't doing so well um and he that that's one of the issues I think a lot of these guys have if you look at the statistics a lot of marriages uh, relationships break down because they stop they don't have anything else they don't know anything else and then it's like they have to transition into this normal life where they're just trying to look for a job and, and be dad and spend all this time um at home whereas they've never had that time before they're just being normal people essentially whereas I kind of wish I'd come into the sport later and had a normal life mm-hmm. and known what that was like and then sort of had a career behind me and then perhaps pursued this dream and then gone back to reality in a sense. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like some of those guys have uh, have no personality really besides being a bike racer. And then, they're robots. And then they're in their late 30s and early 40s and they have to – discover themselves mm-hmm. so and that'd it be is really a, hard it would be so hard I mean it is a statistical fact that a lot of relationships fail when a rider has retired mm-hmm. which is I mean unsurprising if you're if you're in your 40s and you're trying to find yourself yeah well um, I had one rider say that yeah he retired he'd been with his partner forever and then when he actually returned to his home country he realized they had really not much in common anymore. And yeah, because you barely spend any time together when you're racing. Yeah, and he didn't know himself, and he started to actually figure out who he was. And, yeah, they agreed upon a divorce because it was just, yeah. Yeah. All right. A lot of conversations just happened quickly. We tried to move. We didn't. We failed, but that's fine. We're if you're listening to this, you're one of our loyal listeners. I hope so. Um, we just really wanted to get through the questions that we got. We've got three kind of rapid fire questions to finish off. So, Lauren, you ready? Yeah. Favorite dance track that you listen to on or off the bike. Uh, it's an oldish sort of one, a bullet by, I'm trying to think of the thing. Do you know it? Um, no, you're going to have to I'm play sure it. You could like, just look up bullet and find it. Yeah. Um, mine is unsurprisingly shake it off by Taylor Swift. Ooh, Can't help one. but dance when I hear that one. Yep. If someone gave you a vacation home anywhere in the world, where would you choose? On a remote Island with no people. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would choose anywhere on the coast of Ireland. Back to Ireland? Anywhere along the coast. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I I love Ireland so much. Um, You have to change jobs to either an accountant, used car person, circus (laughs) performer, (laughs) circus performer, or data scientist. Which would you choose? Come on, this is the easiest question possible. Yeah, circus performer. Of course. I mean, a data scientist, an accountant, <laughs> a used car salesperson, that immediately makes me think of that dodgy guy from The Simpsons. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely go with circus performer. Yeah, same. I think, <laughs> I think we've kind of proved at this point that we are not the types of people who do well, like, sitting in a cubicle. Yep. So, circus performer, for sure. That'd be so much fun. What would it's your possible. what would your performance be? Ah, uh, hmm. I don't know. Something to do with menstrual cups, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it'd be pretty cool to be like really good at tightrope walking. Yeah, I would love that or like something really dangerous like, I don't know, breathing fire, swallowing a knife. I would like to be very flexible as well, so maybe In a- Something to do like Cirque du Soleil, mm. um, acrobatics in the air. Then you'd be like a really high-paid circus performer, true too, if you were Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, that would be. That I would be in a perfect in a in a dream world. This is a dream world we're talking about. I would be. I would just be an animagus in a in like a circus in a circus. I'd 
be able to turn into what like whatever animal I would turn into. I assumed that I would turn into a wolf. And I would do that. <laughs> I would just walk around as a human and then turn into a wolf and that would be my circus act. So in in my dream world, I mean, how cool would it be to be an animagus and be able to turn into an animal? Yeah. I don't know what animal I would turn into, actually. Something I'm sure there's a, a quiz online. We'll take the quiz online and then when we return for the next freewheeling, we can tell everyone what our animagus would be. Maybe share that with the listeners too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The quiz, we definitely can. All right. That's it. We did the thing. We finished all the questions. And if you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. And if you have any contacts in the circus world, please let us know. I'm currently looking for a profession. I know that we can't meet in groups, but who knows? Maybe circus acts will go virtual somehow. That'd be awesome. The virtual circus, then more people would be able to experience it. Imagine if you could put on then like 3D goggle, like those sort of virtual world goggle things. This is the future. The future is we're going to live in our houses all the time and not, there is no, there's going to be no such thing as shops anymore or the circus or the ballet. You'll just be able to slap on a pair of virtual goggles and like literally stand amongst the dancers when you go to the ballet. Speaking of which, if anyone visits Bruges when we can finally travel again, our museum does a virtual tour through history. So you put on these goggles and then you... You walk through a story back in like the 17, 1800s um, about Bruges. Dang, that's really cool. Mm. All right, we're good. We've done it. So we'll be back next week for our regular freewheeling where we'll talk the news and have some kind of interesting something or other. But for now, Lauren, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Abby. 